Welcome to Two Dope Boys and a Podcast. I'm Michael Brooks. I'm Phil McKenzie. Two Dope Boys is a shout out from the margins. Each week we break down trends using the lens of culture to shed light on what's significant to your future and why. How you doing, comrade? Doing great. It's it's summer in New York. It is. It's summertime. It's like those nights where you just wish you could just, sometimes it actually happens, walk down a Brooklyn street and... Frank Sinatra or Bob Marley is playing out of somebody's window. Those are the two both. pieces of music. Or both, yeah. <laughs> but that's like my kind of general inclination for that kind of like 7.30, 8 o'clock, kind of dark out, but there's still some sun. and Pull out that whiskey. Pull out that people are a little boozy. The kids are out playing. Maybe a fire hydrant got turned on, and it's Frank or Bob Marley. That's the best thing about New York in the yeah, summer. One it really of the few... Is good things about new york in the summer is it does get a little boozy you know i was staying up in spanish harlem a couple two summers ago and uh and, and it was amazing because they were out listening to frankie valley and playing stickball like oh, from ancient. another i mean no it's literally i've stepped out and i like put my iphone away because i was like wait i'm in the 60s yeah you're definitely <laughs> my phone does not belong 60s. here yeah yeah so anyways in contrast to the pleasant parts of New York in summer, we got to get to the brand F-Up of the week. And the brand F-Up comes to us courtesy of a hopefully soon-to-be former uh, member of the UK Parliament, British MP Anne Maria Morris, who is a conservative uh, member, shocking, who represents Newton Abbott in Devon in England. Um, it sounds so nice. It does. That's the one thing I'll say about UK hamlets. They all sound so cute. They sound, well, they all they all sound like parts of the Shire. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> and uh, she was at a, a forum, we don't have sound of this yet, uh, discussing the, uh, the sort of impact of Brexit on the UK economy. And I just will preface this by saying she said the N-word, which I will say before I actually quote the actual word when I quote her. And uh, what I noticed about this is that this was like, this was super unprompted racism. When I say prompted versus ju never justified, but sometimes it's like, oh, okay, I could see how that, that, that signaled <laughs> the lizard brain. I don't really get this one. She's at a forum, and um, after at the, at the East India Club, at the East India Club, right? So yeah. at the very least, she should be talking about like uh, what is it, uh, coolies? Yeah, right? like that. That would be the term. Wrong bigot. She didn't even have like the right bigotry. private gentleman's club. So yeah. maybe you know, a little nostalgia went a little far. <laughs> a little nostalgia went a little bit far. And 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 actually, speaking of which, Matt's going to give us a quote, which might really demonstrate that. When discuss, she said after, and I'm quoting now from Mike, and then that will lead a quote uh, to a quote from her. After suggesting that Brexit would affect 7% of the UK's financial services, Morris continued, and now here she is. Now, I'm sure there will be many people, and I'm just going to do this in a ridiculous British woman's accent, uh, proceeding. Now, I'm sure there will be many people who challenge that. But my response and my request is to look into detail. It isn't gloom and gloom. Now we have to get into the real nigger in the woodpile, which is in two years what will happen if there is no deal. I don't know. It's a it's atrocious. I literally don't know what that word means. It actually what that terminology means. Yeah, that's a new. It actually name. sounds truly awful. But literary scholar Matt Leck 
might have some context for us. Wikipedia tells me that, uh, so apparently this is a figure of speech that goes back to late 19th, early 20th century, originating in America, meaning some fact of considerable importance that is not disclosed, something suspicious or wrong. The origin is not terribly certain, in, at least by Wikipedia. Uh, both the fence and the woodpile variants developed along the same time in the period 1840 to 50 when the Underground Railroad was flour- flourishing. The evidence is slight, but it is presumed that they were derived from actual instances of concealment of fugitive slaves in their flight north under piles of firewood or within hiding places in stone walls. That just made it worse. Oh, my God, this woman needs to be <laughs> locked in a pyramid immediately. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> this is weird because I... Oh, Jesus. I man. like to think I'm up on a lot of my racialized jargon and slang and slurs. Mm, you have a long way to go, young and man. And I've, I've never heard of this one. Like, this is a new one. And I have relatives in the UK, like lots of them, and I've never heard this particular turn of phrase. I mean, I think... Well, maybe your relatives weren't invited to the Tory club. <laughs> Apparently they were not. I got to ask... I got to ask the the British contingent of the Mackenzie family, like, what's going on with this um, nigga in the woodpile stuff? Well, that's that's the weird thing is she apparently uh, apparently imported it uh, into the U.S. from America, so. Yeah, this is, (laughs) the U.K. is just on a, on a tilt toward just fucking up just generally. You know, this, this MP obviously is like, what are you talking about? And like you said, there was, there was no proper there's never a proper context for this but this was extraordinarily like you're reaching right like you're just looking to say something really out of pocket to to just to accomplish what i don't know i could have think of a thousand different analogies that one could have used that would not be this divisive and clearly offensive. No, I mean I think so. This is what how her she goal talks. was is unclear to me. It sounds like this is how she talks. I mean, I if you go to this example to make a banal policy point at a financial roundtable, I really, really doubt that this is not a part of your regular sort yeah. of you know articulation. I mean, I I also just think you know that's one of the sort of things about the british uh, tory party is that they 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 keep a lot of vestiges of the old school <laughs> is how i'll put it um but you know it comes at a time when i think the uk it's so it's like you know conveying so many different messages there have been these terrorist attacks you have brexit you have the the this far-right government you know very crippled with Theresa May being propped up by a, you know, a absolutely deranged Irish fringe. political party, which is, I mean, people should look it up. It's unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And then I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn uh, actually offering a lot of excitement to a lot of people on the other side of things. Uh, but, you know, there's something about this, which just, I have to say as loathsome as he is, I mean, and and so much of it is dated, but you know Tony Blair really actually did change the UK, at least in sort of people's public imagination, with this sort of like cool Britannia and you know this sense that at least on a kind of marketing level, the UK wasn't going to be old and white and stuffy. It was going to be this kind of like global multicultural hub, 
And uh, the Tories are throwing that yeah. away, along with accentuating um, his worst tendencies. That's led by, obviously, I think, like you mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn is someone who's standing up for progressive values, and you have the mayor of London. And Sadiq Khan. Yeah, Sadiq right. Khan, yeah, who's now become, I think that when you think of London, or when you think of the UK, you're likely thinking of those figures, you know? Yeah. And, you know, this language is clearly out of pocket you know i i referenced before we got on air that the grime artist um stormzy was confused with lukaku who's going from everton to man U. i'm a big premier league fan so i'm into all that shit but regardless just this idea that you can confuse people you know like yeah. there's just you know there's just a a general malaise and going Sloppy. backward as it yeah. seems to how the uk is kind of dealing with what do they call it here? Cultural anxiety <laughs> to make it sound a, a little better, you know, but th this is clearly the UK, you know, <laughs> effing up in a, in a pretty anxiety. big way. Yeah, that's the brand of a, it's a dumb comment that represents the very shaky turn of a, uh, of a, of a country in a lot of trouble at the moment. Now we got to get to what's up. Jay-Z, who is not the best rapper of all time, in some of our opinions, uh, has dropped a new album, um, which I'll, I'll say, as not a Jay-Z stan, I'm the 50% of this that is not a Jay-Z stan, um, but is someone who obviously, I think, like, you know, Jay-Z's in that kind of general category of a of a Nas, of a Biggie, of a, you know, the sort of collection of people that we can critique them within context, but obviously are objectively kind of in the sort of top tier master class of what they do. That's not really debatable. And, you know, Jay-Z's last effort uh, several years ago, whose name is completely escaping me at the moment, um, what was the one that he released with Samsung? What was that called? Again? Magna Carta. Magna Carta was genuinely a really weak album, in my view, and I mean, in, independently of any critique or not critique of Jay. Um, so with this new release of 444, I think, you know, he's back. I think that there's a broad range of kind of, you know, opinions of how back he is. I don't know if he's back at the level of, you know, this kind of harkens back to his classics. I think he's hit some very similar notes in other ways. In some ways, he hits some very new themes. Um, I think the song story of OJ is cool. I think the animation and the music video is very interesting and a very interesting and cool choice. But there's also, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of like what's actually happening now in hip-hop, whether it's Lil Yachty or whatever, and the sort of, you know, these kind of debates about what rap is and what hip hop culture is and whether people are paying proper respect to the medium and all this stuff. And what's interesting is watching um, Jay-Z and I do expect you probably see Nas doing something like this in his new album it already has done to some degree. And we certainly would have seen you know, I think it would have been fascinating to see what people like Biggie or Tupac would have done if they were still alive. Um, it's interesting to see someone putting out a record that is definitely like the record of an adult, you know, I mean, not even necessarily to put a category on it, but, uh, you know, a, a married guy, a guy who 
is both sort of comfortable in his success, still very willing to constantly brag about it. That's kind of his trope. But, you know, open about his marriage difficulties, kind of basically acknowledging that what Beyonce said in Lemonade was pretty true. Uh, giving us indirect context for when Solange attacked him in an elevator, which is still pretty funny to watch. You know, it's taking a medium that, it, it, I think in people's minds, I mean, it's just, it's a young medium, but at this point, like, I don't know, it's been going actually for decades. And now the kind of stars that brought it to a broader audience, you know, um, and I don't just mean, uh, you know, racially and sort of in terms of demographics. I also mean just, you know, literally in terms of like, I think, you know, taking New York, you know, people recognize at least in the 90s when New York was like and California was sort of big nationally um, and got a different place and kind of broader pop culture. They're, you know, they're like mid 40s, late 40s, early 50s now, and they're going to put out different things and this album seems to me like the closest reach of any of them and certainly jay-z of kind of like really that balance um so it's a very interesting perspective it's also an interesting perspective from from my view of a guy who you know his success and this sort of sense of uh, capitalism the comfort of it in the Obama era versus the sort of reminder of things in the Trump era. Not that he wasn't cognizant of Black Lives Matter and everything else, but that's a stark contrast of where he was just even in, you know, relation to a president. Yeah, I I, I go the other way, though. You know, clearly, I, I think this this record, not that there was ever a doubt, but no reasonable doubt pun intended <laughs> that jay was clearly the best to have to have done this and this record solidifies it to me because i think it's a classic it's a classic record which gives him four or five like five mic to reference the old source magazine measurement of a record and it does a, a couple of things that up until this point no one has been really able to do. And I, and I wrote a, a piece about this that I published on Medium that talked about this idea of hip-hop eating its young. Hip-hop is, is a, a vehicle that is primarily driven by youth culture, meaning that when a rapper reaches a certain age, regardless of their commercial interests or output, they're usually relegated to a certain part of the hip-hop world and that part is not leading the way it's not particularly popular um unlike rock music that mythologizes um it's it's elder statesmen right. rap you know hip-hop rap music doesn't really do that you know and jay-z has managed to remain relevant the last album notwithstanding not because of of anything he did from a music perspective but just his legendary status and has is just like you said one of the ones that you can't really argue with it mm -hmm. though you were getting to the point where newer artists were coming up and people were saying are they better are they now the best lyricists like where do they rank and so now you were starting to open the door to those kind of conversations 
in my mind, the record is not that other rappers haven't dealt with adult things because all rappers have dealt with adult things. They've dealt right. with their life, their challenges, their challenges, whether they were 19, but their minds were older. Shout out to Prodigy, rest in peace. Or they were older in the sense that we would think of as older. They're dealing with realities. Like you can't say that 1988 NWA wasn't dealing with adult topics you know they were always dealing with those things but i think jay put an album together sonically and content wise that's dealing with things that are sort of i don't want to say necessarily middle age but they're they're life things that that you can only get to with a certain level of age you know um relationships you're talking about leaving a legacy and it's actually there from the legacy perspective that i think the album doesn't go as far as it could because jay doesn't confront and deal with his issues around capitalism in the way that i think he should and many others have cited that he should have and but in my mind, that le- that leaves room for evolution, for change, for there to be an imagination to get to a more radical deconstruction of what economics can look like. This record didn't do that, but it did appeal to, again, the basic capitalist neoliberal ideology that I think hip hop embraces pretty wholeheartedly even if it doesn't know that it's it's doing that and that's where i think the album didn't go as far but it's it went far relative to who jay is right if that makes sense yeah no that makes sense i mean i i I think that you know this is where to me i think that there is nuance in it i mean i think also in in a broader cultural context it makes total sense i mean kind of hip-hop rose in the 80s and 90s and the 80s and 90s is the pinnacle of neoliberalism and that reflects in all elements of society and it would make total sense that you know especially the kind of era that we refer back to of this sort of like mid late 90s like well you know it's a tech bubble and everybody's kind of riding everything out across the society so why would you know excess and indulgence be you know, any different when it's in the hip hop community. But I do think that, and I'll, and I won't just use, you know, Nas as a counterpoint. I'll even use, you know, Biggie, who I think in some ways maybe wasn't even as, you know, he was a young dude and didn't have the room, you know, he didn't, never was as explicitly political as Nas or Jay Z. No. Very political, I would say, kind of, you know, implicitly or covertly even, or maybe even indirectly. But, I think that for other rappers in that kind of stage, there was a little bit more of the acknowledgement of the ambiguity of those things and a little bit more of a critique where I do think mostly Jay really did play out just that kind of like Horatio or Alger kind of narrative. I think that is his kind of ballywick. So I think he's growing, but I think he's growing from less of a place than maybe some of his peers who might have seen 
innately in it a little bit more of the contradictions and a little bit more of the tensions inside it where you know because to me one of the areas where i really did get frustrated with jay-z was you know he tried to profit to some degree off of occupy wall street which you know that annoyed me and then at the time you know he was still kind of saying um that you know for people who were poor um, or of color just to like see him live a certain lifestyle was inspiring in and of itself. Whereas I do think that others of his peers and not just, I mean, I do think Nas, but I'm not trying to dredge that in. I think many of them were able to, as I say, at least inject a little bit more ambiguity into that narrative. I think he's kind of like the most pure expression of that. But at the same time, like you say, I mean, that is also hip hop. And all of yeah. them were talking about the cars they drove, the girls they fucked and everything else. And that's, yeah. and you know, that's part of the medium. So he shouldn't be specifically, you know, excoriated for that. But I think we also have to know, acknowledge that he was probably the fullest in on that as a bet. And that's a problematic aspect of his legacy. I mean, a lot of this is built to like, you know, I've been having this conversation over and over and. Like one of my, you know, one of my chapter brothers that I really respect, he he pinged me privately and kind of was like, yo, you didn't really get at him from a capitalist perspective as much. And, you know, I again, I try to leave room for that personal evolution and that imagination. But, you know, we got to also think that Jay-Z, from a certain perspective, is doesn't reflect any different values from Obama. Oh, or hundred percent. You know 100%. any you know Bill Gates or any of those yes. people. So to a certain extent, this this philanthro capitalist model of make as much as you can and then give back through traditional philanthropy models starting a foundation and and what have you they're still all tied into the exploitative model that is late stage capitalism yeah you know in all of these organizations whether you're the un the ford foundation world economic forum george soros um anybody that you think is out there on whatever side of the aisle you are that is in a philanthropy model that is not, you know, presenting an alternative to capitalism is just perpetuating the same system. So from this perspective, Jay-Z is Bono. Like they're no, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're no different, you know? Yes. I would want him and all of these people to actually push their, their critique further. And, understand that just by the very basis of of the way in which they have produced their work they put their work out into world into the world supports these models that that kill that destroy you know maybe he gets there maybe he doesn't i don't know but that that was glaringly um lost on this on this record but when i read how much of that of this record is lauded for these message of generational wealth and looking out for your own and all this kind of stuff. It showed me just how much capitalism is actually baked into all of this. Like there's not that many people that have gone 
the other way to calling these messages out and most, the, of, it, most uh, of the things i yeah. saw was like yeah jay's like repping for his family and right. doing what's and that, right and, and that led to some simplistic. weird shit you know like on story of oj which i think is a relatively strong track like i mean look i have no i think you know the old trope about shouting out jews for having good credit is you know that's a little like old fucking really old trope meets like you know 21st century aspirations and i also think like look even if you're someone who wants to implement just a different version of capitalism and start and support the upstarts and everything else which is kind of what hip-hop is supposed to be is an insurgency art form i think the notion and the goal that you would try to create you know intergenerational legacy wealth and essentially just you know you know, uh, dope clad trust fund babies is actually pretty depressing. So I think, you know, on Jay-Z's end, the, the kind of spiritual themes, the relational themes, I think it's very interesting and very important to have that in hip hop, which some people still have this kind of, you know, they don't, the intellectualism was always there, obviously, but, you know, it, with the subject matter, that'll make people just, you know, be kind of more forced on them. And I think that that's important. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think the actual economic messages were, you know, they were sad. Yeah. And, and that's, and, <laughs> I mean, that's what I got. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah. you know, just one thing, like when you said that about you know, kind of keeping your, your click, like, you know, Drake famously was like, no new friends, you know, like if we're not building like really strong connective tissue, then you're not going to be in a position to change any of this because the forces that are aligned on the other side that support capitalism and are willing to drag us and the planet and everything on it to an eventual demise are completely 100% organized and they move lockstep on so many levels that work both obviously and subliminally you know and if you're not willing to pull other people in under this idea of me against the world and you know get rich or die trying like all of these ideas are so baked into popular culture and they manifest most directly through hip-hop and I think yeah. that's what you see is someone dealing with having lived that and maybe trying to break it out of something new, but falling short, ultimately. That's what's up. I got to get to what's next. Now I want to get to what's next. And over the past few months, really with the Susan Fowler memo that kind of brought started to bring investigations to the uber we've started to see more and more of an awareness around the issues of sexual harassment in silicon valley and just over the past i guess two weeks or so we've seen implosion of two of the more leading figures um one chris saka um the other dave mcclure dave mcclure famously runs um 500 startups which is one of the largest um incubators in Silicon Valley, um, Chris Saka is um, a huge early investor in Twitter, Uber, Twilo, Instagram, a ton of what are now household names in the space. So he's a investor of very high regard. And these are just two of the more notable um, men who have had to fall on their sexual harassment sword and write these long 
blog Mia Copas talking about how right. sorry they are. Um, Chris is, is actually called I Have More Work to Do, obviously. Um, Dave McClure's is I'm a Creep, I'm Sorry. And they go on and on. That's a creepy blog title. Yeah. But it's a it's a page turner. <laughs> and um they go deeply into their past behavior with um women that they've encountered that were coming to them for in in one case a job, in other case more cases often than not, they were looking for investment. And and this has had now Silicon Valley reeling. Right. Where people are wondering, okay, is this now a, a turning point where people are going to own up to this toxic environment, not only for uh, women, but for people of color, the terrible numbers in terms of diversity represented in Silicon Valley are more than well known. We won't rehash those for the purpose of this conversation. Everyone can see and and know that we had um Anil Dash in the studio I guess a couple of weeks ago and and we talked at length about the issues around diversity and inclusion in Silicon Valley and why this is so important that you have a a particular industry that is flush with cash billions upon billions of dollars and they're making choices on a daily basis as to where that money goes and they're making bets on who is basically going to win over these next however many years into decades and resource allocation having um, access to resources or not is what makes tremendous differences in terms of communities being allowed to have their voice represented be successful and so on and so forth. Obviously, these things are are clear. So when you have an industry that is burdened by people like Dave McClure, um, Chris Sack, and many others, it begs the question, you know, what are you looking out as an industry? Is this really a tipping point? I would argue that it isn't. I think this is more branding and the only way you're going to see any real change is if you start to vote with your dollars. You know, I'm not interested in your apologies. I'm not interested in your in your blog posts. I'm not interested in you falling on the sword. All of that is meaningless if people who don't make decisions, either LPs who are investing in funds, choosing not to invest in funds that don't have diverse portfolios, or um, venture capital firms actually voting with their dollars and saying, we're going to fund people of color, we're going to fund women, we're going to fund different areas. You don't have to geographically be in the valley to become eligible. You know, saying that this is not the only place where good ideas could come from, you being a Stanford dropout. And so that automatically gives you entree in a in a world that doesn't really respect for all of their talk about openness, doesn't really respect those concepts. So until we start to see that that significant change in where money's being allocated, the future for Silicon Valley to me is still very dim. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I actually 
you know, it's funny, far be it for me to be slightly less cynical. I, I think there's, well, I'm not. I mean, the, the broader point you're making is true, which is that, and this is kind of the lesson that everybody needs to constantly get in today's world and today's economy, that some things are just structural and they need to be addressed in a structural way, whether that's through, you know, policy that breaks up monopolies or whether that's structural decisions when people start up funds and decide where and how to invest their money. I mean, I, we are so far behind. I mean, I, I you know, I, I've talked about, I mean, the amount of catching up on racial, gender, sexual diversity, I want to get, I want cognitive diversity. I want project diversity. I think, you know, just even the fact that Silicon Valley all too often does not even understand that it's culture in a certain way, thinks that it's just tech. You know, we've talked to Grant McCracken about it. I talked to a friend of mine who's a who's a uh, editor at Fast Company about how, you know, for all of the incredible flaws of other kind of centers of commerce, at least like, you know, a New York or a London still had a perception that their commerce fit into a culture on some level um, versus just this kind of like very limited sense of end user. I mean, on the, at the same time, I mean, you know, I, I do in fact know and, you know, have had the pleasure of working with some people who are working on some great projects in the Valley, obviously. I, I, I think what's interesting in this case, in McClure's case, is he is actually handing over management of his organization for the time being yeah, to, he's out. to a woman um, who is she's taking out. over. Christine is out. Yeah, they both. Well, she's already out, yeah. even as of the of the blog post. Because okay. some more allegations some came more out. Some more allegations yeah. came out that implicated Christine Tsai as well in terms yeah. of kind of covering for him. yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, so there, you know, that obviously already shifts the blog post. Um, I just want to read from this because I think this is like kind of, you know, this was all first reported in a New York Times article called uh, Women in Tech uh, fr Speak Frankly on the Culture of Harassment. And this is now quoting from McClure's blog post. With respect to the New York Times article, and Sarah Gunst uh, specifically, who, who, Kunst, who talked about him harassing her. I'd like to sincerely and apologize for inappropriate advances towards her several years ago over drinks, late one night in a small group where she mentioned she was interested in a job at 500, which is McClure's fund, or yep. his former fund. While I did not offer her a job at the time, a few days later, I did refer to my co-founder, Christine Tsai, to begin a formal interview process with 500, where Christine and others on the team met with her. Ultimately, 500 decided not to offer Sarah a job. And again, my apologies to Sarah for inappropriate behavior in a setting, though it was social. But in hindsight, it was clearly not. It was my fault, and I take full responsibility. She was correct in calling me on it. I mean, you know, obviously, I think this sort of, I believe him in the sense that I think that behavior is so gross and so standard issue. And, you know, people also not, realizing like the basic reality and i'm not saying that other situations could be exploitative but it's like dude this woman is not sitting near you in a social setting um in the same way that maybe she might be potentially interested in like a rock star to social setting without any kind of future career prospects because she might be like whoa this you know this guy's an interesting charismatic person and maybe i'm a fan obviously as soon as you're even indirectly playing with any type of quid pro quo, even indirectly of sex for a job, even if she got the job, is so innately demeaning, exploitative, sexist, and disgusting. And I think that the whole tone of the article of like, 
there's this limited sense of getting it, but not really getting it. Yeah. And it won't be gotten without internal cultural change. It's part of the work we do. Um, you know, vigorous enforcement and really getting that like these bombs are going to keep detonating until you just have a different makeup of people in the room. Yeah. These guys think that they, and they're guys, you know, they, they've bought into all of this language and it's so boring and sickening every time you, you hear it or read about it. They, believe their own nonsense that i'm a master of the universe and i'm able to like sniff out these incredible opportunities that mere mortals can't and you see it with their obsession with so many like off-kilter things that are just about separating themselves from regular human beings and you know they've Burning Man was an example of something that started with this really egalitarian spirit that, again, has been infected and corrupted by this kind of thinking, you know, where they want to buy into some aspects of a of a human connection without really having the common decency and understanding of how to relate to people. So, of course, they think. Their one narrow way of looking at things and doing things is going to work. Right. So they don't process information in the same way that a normal human being would and could and should. Yeah. You know, and and they think they have all the answers. You know, even on a on a political perspective, the WTF bullshit from Pincus and and Reed Hoffman. Is oh my an, god. Is another Jesus example. Christ. Well, that's a brand f up. I yeah. mean, that's an effort of uh a guy who literally got rich off of selling like fake potato plants and another guy who posts resumes online um to, you know, reinvent the Democratic Party <laughs> in a way that, you know, somehow magically just fits the policy preferences of hedge fund managers and Silicon Valley people, yeah. which is that it's regressive corporate and modestly socially progressive and even the notion of like their one their one tip of the hat to the genuine progressive notion of bernie sanders which is free universal college was well we'll make an engineering Engineering degree degree. well what i wonder what that would do might that potentially drive down the salaries of all people going into silicon valley engineering jobs i mean the that but that's kind of what i mean with regard to the blog post it's like the cynicism is so innate that it's almost innocent and not innocent in terms of like it shouldn't be held accountable and corrected but it's it's delusional yeah that's the word the cynicism is so deep that it's delusional yeah they're they're they have no idea of where taking a step away taking a step back empowering other people like if we're still caught in this capitalist capitalist vortex where money votes on good ideas then give your money whether it's from a business perspective from a philanthropic perspective or from a political perspective to organizations that are doing the work and understand what it means to be advocates for something we don't need your voice you know the only thing you have of value because we're stuck in this system is the check so cut the check and go away. 
You know, because you yep. have nothing of value to add other than that. And until the the checks get start to get cut to include decisively include a different makeup of people in Silicon Valley, the rest of this is all bullshit. Word. That's what's next. We've got to get to the crates. Now we want to get to the crates. Digging into crates is when we bring you a piece of work that you'll find interesting. It'll make you better, smarter, faster, more nimble, all those good things. And I'm going true to form. Haven't done this in a while, I don't think, where I've gone full blurred. Nope. So it's on. In in light of the new Spider-Man movie being released um, last Friday, which will be two weeks by the time this airs, um, I want to recommend two Spider-Man titles. I haven't seen the new movie yet, though I will. And there's been, in blurred circles, a lot of conversation about the character. Peter Parker, Spider-Man, has been through so many different iterations. And one thing I've Pretty seen high. is this obsession with this idea that you know, we've finally gotten Spider-Man right because he's young in this movie, which is fine. Like I said, I haven't seen it, but I have heard promising things. So I'm going in with an open mind. But two of my favorite Spider-Man stories actually are very mature. And that's why I think I love them. So I think that people who are not overly familiar with the character obsess on the age Right. But it's a character that's actually been th like started with loss. You know, he became Spider-Man because he lost his Uncle Ben. Everyone knows this, so there's not a spoiler. Um, but the two stories I want to recommend are um, Spider-Man Blue, which is a limited series, six issues um, put together by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. And it's a touching story about a, a long lost love of Peter Parker. I'll leave it at that. Then the other one is called Craven's Last Hunt, which was um, actually published in 1987. Um, J.M. DeMathis and Mike Zack as the illustrator. It's a it's a very, very dark story. Happy to say I have all of these in original um, editions. So Damn. buoy for me. Those, but those um, trips to the Caribbean. Huh? Yeah. Craven's Last Hunt and Spider-Man Blue. Um, both amazing stories. Um, highly recommend both of them. Um, I'm going to just recommend because I, I can't lie to everybody. I mean, everything is really intense in the news cycle. Uh, we're all busy as fuck. I'm putting together a new show, doing this, Majority Report, everything. And um, sometimes I just, I, I'm totally unashamed to watch something on repeat. And I've been revisiting on Netflix or wherever you figure out how to get this. For me, it's Netflix, but... Archer is fucking hilarious, man. I I just, <laughs> I'm just rewatching it like from season one, and not only does it hold up, I have to say as a as a as a somewhat professional. You know, there's a professional comedy thing in my portfolio, and as a comedy carnivore, I mean, the joke writing is banana. Like it's it's nuts the levels it's working on. It's super vulgar. But actually, um, and not that this is like the point, it is first and foremost an entertainment product, but it's actually a pretty lefty show. Um, Archer's hilarious. So I would say, unless you- Co-sign on Archer. Yeah, Archer's I mean, if you can't deal with a lot of vulgarity in some ways, I mean, I might, you know, but 
That show is hilarious. And I've actually yet to encounter anybody from um, from Phil, my brother from another mother, except his evil Republican friend, Luke, who's a loyal listener. Shout out to Luke. Much love. Um, every, everybody, dude, everybody with taste likes Archer. It's hilarious. So that's my crates for this week. Thank you, Super Producer Matt Leck. We'll be back at you with On Point.